What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Jim O'Shaughnessy is a Wall Street legend and the founder, chairman, and chief investment officer of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. Jim's areas of expertise include quantitative equity analysis, portfolio management, and investment models. He has authored several books and been awarded numerous patents for his investment strategies. In this conversation, we discuss the psychology of investing, the similarities between the dot-com bubble and crypto, and whether or not Bitcoin can act as a store of value. I really enjoyed hearing Jim's historical perspective on what is happening in the crypto markets, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, how are you? Uh, I am here with Jim O'Shaughnessy, an absolute legend on uh, on Wall Street. He's laughing as I say that, which means that it's probably true. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. Well, I can tell you that my wife and children say I am a legend in my own mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's half the battle, actually. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm super excited to have you. I think, uh, you know, a lot of times we spend time talking with uh, people who are in the uh, decentralization, um, kind of cryptocurrency uh, industry and mindset. Um, you have a very different background coming from uh, a, a long career on Wall Street and in traditional finance. And so uh, I'm excited to hear what you kind of think about all of this, uh, the hoopla and hype around uh, around crypto. Sure. Not glad to be here. <laughs> um, so for those that don't know you, why don't we go through your background first um, and then you can make it sound as legendary as you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, um, I came up uh, as a young guy, just I fell in love with the stock market at an early age. That's kind of weird. But I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, and uh, we had a family foundation. And they would once a quarter have meetings uh, for the foundation in St. Paul. Um, And when I got to be old enough, they invited me to the dinners. Bunch of Irish people. You can imagine how those dinners would go. Uh, But I was listening to my uncle and father argue about the merits of IBM. Mm -hmm. And they were talking all about whoever the current CEO was then. Everything that they were describing was people. And I'm like listening to this thinking, I think that that's an awful way to buy a public company. Maybe if you're doing a startup, the people matter a lot more. But if you're buying one of the biggest companies in the world, I think numbers are more important. (laughs) So I went down to the James J. Hill Library, uh, which was a great reference library in uh, St. Paul. Uh, All the uh, railroad barons set up these enormous libraries, and Mm -hmm. so they they had everything. Um, Originally, I grabbed the uh, uh, S&P Tearsheet book, which has 500 companies in it, and being potentially one of the laziest people on the planet, decided that that was not going to work out for me. So I thought, why don't I just look at the 30 stocks uh, in the Dow? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found a book there that went all the way back to 1885, and it showed every single component of the Dow from 1885 forward um, and learned a lot of really interesting things. For example, they kicked IBM out of the Dow before it went up something like 30-fold, and they replaced it with AT&T, which went up one times. <laughs> So, you know, had they left, you know, certain stocks in the Dow, the Dow would be vastly higher today. Anyway, what I did was I list the 30 for each year, and then I just did the standard numbers, price, price to earnings, dividend yield, price to book, all of those things. And literally, this is 1978, I had to do this by hand uh, on a big paper spreadsheet. Um, And so I I got an inkling that uh, not paying up for a stock was a good way to invest. (laughs) Uh, I did a comparison between the uh, Dow stocks with the highest PEs versus the lowest PEs, and there was no comparison. Uh, Mm -hmm. Buying annually the 10 with the lowest PE just absolutely obliterated the 10 highest uh, PE stocks. 
Uh, but then I also looked at dividend yield. I ultimately wrote an article for Barron's in 1993. Uh, you might be familiar with the famous Dogs of the Dow strategy. Mm -hmm. Well, I took that back to when the modern Dow was created. There were a couple other books, so I, I do not claim credit for having invented that strategy. Uh, but the other books uh, only really went to the 1950s. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought, well, you know, the Dow's been around since the late 20s. Let's go see how it does. And we'll have this huge out-of-sample holdout period to see whether it works then as well. It did. Um, and, uh, of course, I'm an 18-year-old male. I had other interests, uh, including girls and parties and all of those things. So I kind of set that aside. Uh, went to college um, and uh, then met uh, my current wife of 36 years at a college summer party. Um, graduated college and then started back in earnest. And now I had computers, so now I was really dangerous. Now you're rocking and rolling. <laughs> um, and uh, so a, I got hired by a big pension fund in the Twin Cities called Control Data. It was an old conglomerate. And... Uh, back then, you know, the dark ages really were dark. A lot of people didn't even know what style their portfolio manager was using. Mm -hmm. Were they growth? Were they value? Were they growth at a reasonable price? You know, all of these things. And they said, we want you to come in and make some sense of this for us. So I founded the company O'Shaughnessy Capital Management in 1987 to do that. Um, and we created what were uh, called normal portfolios. They're like highly specialized benchmarks. It's not like using the S&P 500 or using the Russell One value, you know, as a kind of a general uh, uh, benchmark for how a manager might be doing. What we did was take the manager's portfolios, put them on a database, look at the most extreme differences in their portfolio from that universe, and then use the most extreme differences to screen the same universe for a portfolio of stocks that looked, acted, and most importantly, performed like the underlying manager. The whole purpose of a normal portfolio was really simple. It was, is this manager, through his or her activity, trading, selling, buying, adding any significant value to their underlying sta uh, style, or is it all the style? Mm -hmm. Well, what we found uh, was my kind of aha moment. Um, even though we attributed huge transaction costs uh, to the portfolios that we created as the normals, they killed their underlying managers. And I don't mean just by a percent or two. They absolutely destroyed them. Why? Because this was the inkling of, I wonder if that cartoon by Kelly is right, Pogo, we've met the enemy, and it's us. And that's when I started to develop the theory that basically human beings are designed to suck as investors, mm -hmm. right? So we are optimized towards a history that no longer exists and hasn't existed in eons, right? When we're out walking on the savanna, and we see a bush rustling, it's a probably a very good idea to turn around and run like hell, right? <laughs> because you don't know what that is. It could be a predator, it could be something else, but you're not gonna take your chances. You're just gonna run. Yep. Well, all of our ancestors of everyone sitting in this room ran. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the ones who didn't run, the braver, all got killed. And so that, that made us optimized to be very, very fearful of, of perceived threats. Mm -hmm. And so when markets, as we know, are incredibly volatile, what do people do? The amygdala takes over, the fear takes over the brain, and there's almost nothing you can do to fight it unless you are a quantitative investor who does not override their model, mm -hmm. right? So... I started reading a lot of what is now known as behavioral finance. Um, and uh, actually, I found a book by a guy by the name of Robin Dawes, a Brit, uh, who his book was actually about psychotherapy, but he had a great chapter uh, about all of the studies that had been done over actuarial outcomes, i.e. algorithmic outcomes, and clinical outcomes. That means I'm the doctor diagnosing you. And when they started all these things in the 50s, they all thought, all of the researchers thought that the human expert was going to soar above these simple algorithmic solutions. 
the algorithmic solutions destroyed them. Mm -hmm. And they destroyed them for one reason and one reason only. They were consistently applied time and time and time again. We humans are far more interesting, right? We get hungover. We have a fight with our spouse. We're in a bad mood or we're in a good mood. And we let that influence our decisions in financial markets. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a study that just sticks out in my mind, and that is about people trying to get parole. If you want to get uh, parole, make sure that you are one of the first appointments of the day. The people who are at the, you know, the 8 to 10 uh, uh, in their hearing, they get parole at at something like 85% of the time. Guess who almost never gets paroled? The people whose appointment is right before lunch. And mm-hmm. why is that? The judges are hungry. And so they're like, nope, 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 time for lunch. And, you know, it's amazing, but I've collected these examples over the years. And, you know, I, I often say to people, we have known about this for a long, long time. One of the best books that I think every new investor should read is Reminiscence of a Stock Operator, Mm -hmm. uh, the fictionalized life of Jesse Livermore, who was a big trader back in the 20s and literally was short the market going into the 1929 crash. People, he had to hire security guards because people wanted to tear him limb from limb. Because again, if you understand human history, if you understand human psychology, we all look for a scapegoat. Right. Mm-hmm. We had very famous scapegoats during the financial crisis. Right. Um, and that hasn't changed at all. And so he had to go into hiding. And ultimately, the real sadness of Livermore is he ended up killing himself in the Sherry Lehman Hotel here in New York because he finally had that last trade, which bankrupted him. And even though he knew. Right. And his whole book, Reminiscence of a Stock Operator, is all about nothing ever changes. The same thing that led Isaac Newton to buy in at the top of the South Sea Trading Company back in the 1700s is happening to us today. So I always say different play or sorry, different players, same play. Yep, absolutely. So speaking of bubbles buying the top and uh, and kind of nothing changing, you know, you have a historian type view of financial markets over you know a very long period, centuries of time, mm-hmm. um, and I tend to agree with you that different players, same game. If you apply that to cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, digital assets, I think that uh, many people would argue we're actually seeing different players, same game, on steroids. No question about that. And so, you know, my disclaimer is. What I know about crypto, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, my son, taught me. And, and literally, he taught me in a Wichita hotel uh, lobby while we were waiting for the golf bus to come. And I looked at him. I went, all right, Patrick, you know, because he's doing his whole hash power yep. uh, thing, and, which I thought turned out really well. Uh, but I go, okay, I'm five years old. Explain it to me. And so I have, I, let's put it this way. I have just enough knowledge to be dangerous. And so, and so I always go into my standard. Here is something financial people never say enough. I don't know. <laughs> okay? I don't know. And if we're going to use that as our jumping off point, I'm happy to talk about it. But listeners, I don't know. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes the three yeah, gets it across. Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, look, I, I think that uh, the beauty and, and why I wanted to talk to you, right, was uh, there is some uh, ignorance and bliss or uh, there's some bliss and ignorance right around um, the asset almost doesn't matter. No. Right. I, and, and look, I, I've always said that the four horsemen of the investment apocalypse are fear, greed, hope and ignorance. Mm-hmm. And if you think about that, only ignorance is not an emotion. Fear, greed, and hope have wiped out more fortunes than anything historically in auction-based markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, look, the last edge, in my opinion, is to arbitrage human behavior. Mm-hmm. Why? Markets change minute by minute. Human being and human nature changes imperceptibly millennium by millennium. Mm-hmm. There's your edge. Mm-hmm. Right. Because even though people are going to say, oh, we'll never do that. We would never, ever, 
ever do that, they say that right up until the minute they do it. So you were kind of looking for, uh, you know, where have we seen this movie before? Well, well, and I think just just to clarify, right, so the asset is highly liquid global, you know, it's all this stuff, but the bubble, right, or, or the correction that we just saw over, let's say, the last 12 months, I think is a, uh, a pattern, especially when you literally look at it on a chart, that is very, very reminiscent and almost an exact overlay of many markets previously. Oh, definitely. In the fourth edition of What Works on Wall Street, uh, we had uh, two charts in there. One was uh, the South Sea bubble that mm-hmm. Isaac Newton lost a fortune in, and the other one was the NASDAQ. And they're identical, basically. Really? And, you know, we the, the, the time that I remember that is so reminiscent of what we're seeing now, a little, a little of the edges off, though, because mm-hmm. the correction's been pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, when the corrections get to be this significant, people are feeling real pain. Mm-hmm. And so the ebullience and the enthusiasm definitely wanes. Mm-hmm. Um, like Rothschild saying, wait until uh, there's blood in the streets to buy. Um, but uh, going into the dot-com boom, uh, so this, I wrote a paper called The Internet Contrarian, which I can send you if you're interested, in April of 1999, basically outlining why I was about as bearish about any trend during my career. Um, and I said, when this ends, and it's going to end badly, the number of books that get written about the, uh, by the by authors, it's just going to end so badly because ultimately economics matters. Mm-hmm. And and then what did I do? I founded an internet company. <laughs> 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 Not too smart this one. Uh, so it was a company called Netfolio. It was the first robo advisor mm-hmm. in two thousand um, and. The, the valuation extremes were, I mean, it was crazy. It was literally crazy. And what, what happens, here's the guy who's talking about you've got to have rules governing your emotions. You cannot get excited about this. It's going to ruin you. It's going to ruin you. Mm-hmm. Getting a good idea, which I think it was a good idea, mm-hmm. for a robo-advisor, you could, uh, it's not like the current robos. It actually lets you trade without a cost. Um, and you could build your portfolio. We would show you a bunch of back tests on portfolios, and you could go from very conservative to very aggressive. Um, anti-smoking, kick Philip Morris out. The next name on the list comes up. So mm-hmm. it was a pretty slick uh, environment and offering. Um, and, of course, the ultimate uh, Internet crash came when a guy by the name of Jack Willoughby, who I, I know, uh, he's, he's a very interesting guy who writes for Barron's, uh, and very smart, uh, but uh, sometimes a little like Columbo. In other words, he's so smart, he tries to kind of convince you that he's not, but you can see it. It's Those are the ones uh, to watch yeah, out for. definitely. <laughs> and so he kind of thought, he was musing with his editor, and he goes, I wonder how much cash all of these Internet companies have, yeah, and what their burn rate is. Yeah. <laughs> well, it would seem to me that if they can't raise more money, that these are all their death dates. Yep. And they're like, do it. Write the story. Now, the story's name, you can ch- find it online. I'll send you a bunch of these links. Yep. Um, but they changed the name from burn rate to something else, burning money or whatever. But that story literally took the internet down because it was like everyone collectively woke up at exactly the same time and went, oh my God, we're all going to die. Yep. And boom. And, and that was kind of it. It was the end. All the VCs, we had VCs wanting to throw huge valuations at us, disappeared. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the, uh, the number of careers that got ruined in that. I once uh, debated a guy on stage because we always come at uh, investing kind of from a value perspective. Yep. Uh, although we do use momentum and other things, so we're not, you know, and, and quality, and we have a very kind of complicated sauce now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was on stage in Minneapolis with me, big crowd, and his, and it was a debate, and his advice to the people in the audience was only buy technology companies and especially internet companies. 
That was it. And I kind of looked at him. I said, I think I'm sure I heard you wrong. You, you didn't just say to buy not only just one sector, but a specific component of that sector. And he goes, he goes, the, the, the economy has radically changed forever. It is never going back to bricks and mortar. And, you know, I was 39 at the time. He's saying, Jim, you know, you're, you're a bit of an old codger for someone who's only 39 years old. And I said, but, but math. <laughs> and things didn't go well. It's uh, for uh, all of those it, We like to say the pesky facts. Right? Yes, the pesky <laughs> facts. And, you know, so, so markets have always done this. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the thing. My, my big areas of study, obviously, are in the, on the quantitative side yep. of things. I, I've spent 30 years uh, studying uh, that side of the market. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've also spent a lot of time understanding evolutionary biology and psychology. Um, because if you get a really good understanding of men and women and the way we are emotionally designed, uh, you, can, you, you can have much greater faith in saying, nope, it's going to happen exactly the same way it happened before. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it's funny because something that didn't cause anyone any consternation six months ago now becomes, oh, that is, that's going to kill us. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, the U.S. government is going to make crypto illegal. Uh, okay. Uh, and they're going to give the death penalty uh, if uh, you are found having crypto pretty strong deterrent mm -hmm. you know fdr did it uh with gold uh he confiscated all gold in the 1930s because he was going moving completely off the gold standard because he had to mm -hmm. and uh everyone complied mm -hmm. and so having the world's biggest economy be unable to uh participate in crypto would definitely put a, a crimp in its style Conversely, if you look at black markets, right, and that is something that I've looked at over the years, black markets are enormous. Even in free market societies like our own, mm -hmm. uh, think about housekeepers, think about drugs, mm -hmm. think about uh, people who sell cigarettes that don't pay the tax. Yep. Uh, so even in a relatively free market like the U.S., huge black market, and then take places like Venezuela or whatever, and it's all black market. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about those black markets is they are all priced in U.S. dollars. So there is an inertia, a huge amount of money that's at stake. Mm -hmm. And sure, could some of those people uh, convert their, uh, their dollars to cryptocurrency? Actually, there's a lot of good reasons why they should, right? Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, a lot of, uh, again, inertia is another one of the laws that I just love. And thank you, uh, Sir Isaac Newton. <laughs> uh, you know, people are really strange in that, oh, I've got time, I've got time, I've got time, and then their time runs out. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, you know, I, as I say, I don't know enough to, to be a bull or a bear mm -hmm. on, on the whole space. You, we were talking earlier, and, and I think that one of your strategies, I know you have many, uh, but one of your strategies about uh, during the gold rush, you know, building the hotels, selling the pickaxes, selling the pails, that works. Mm -hmm. That works really well. And so I think that uh, there's all sorts of secondary and ancillary uh, people who can make a lot of money from crypto. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I definitely think that uh, the, the, the crypto world is still mysterious enough. Even to somebody like me who knows just enough to be dangerous, I know guys, I'm 58, so I know guys my own age don't have a clue. Yep. And they'll call me on the phone and they'll say, Jim, you know, you, you understand this crypto thing. And I go, no. Here's Patrick's number. Call him. <laughs> uh, because, and, and frankly, we, uh, O'Shaughnessy Family Partners, which is our family office, mm -hmm. did make a small uh, investment in crypto just to see how it worked. Mm -hmm. uh, because we thought, well, this has the potential to be big. Um, so we want to see, I'm a huge believer in you can't learn anything unless you've got skin in the game. Yep. 
you know, it, because what happens is you intellectualize everything. And, oh, I would have definitely sold there. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't have sold there. Everyone's a genius in hindsight. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Everyone's from Lake Wobegon, right? Above average. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I believe that, you know, we're doing a lot of really interesting work right now on machine learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, again, to really, really understand, you've got to have you've got to have your own money on the line. Absolutely. What um, let, let's talk about kind of the international, um, you know, kind of economic situations that are occurring, right? So you've got uh, obviously Turkey, right? You've got Iran, you've got Venezuela, Zimbabwe. Uh, never these com- uh, countries are either close to or are experiencing hyperinflation, etc. You know, is there any time previously that you can think of where, you know, there was, I don't want to say it's widespread because it's still, you know, just a handful of countries and, and they're kind of the usual suspects type mm-hmm. thing. Um, but where economic uh, situations or chaos to some degree uh, internationally really drove a change in investor interest in certain asset classes in the U.S.? Um, not so much in the U.S., but uh, the best example of hyperinflation ruining a country was the Weimar Republic in Germany, uh, which extended to uh, kind of vassal states, Austria. Mm-hmm. Um, for a brief time, people were literally going to the zoo and killing the animals to eat them. Wow. Uh, so things have gotten a lot worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, generally speaking, uh, when you have when you have several things in place, um, you your your risk of that kind of nightmare economic apocalypse mm-hmm. uh, is reduced rather dramatically. Uh, the first things is a relatively free market. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States likes to say we're a free market. We're not a free market society. We are a regulated. Uh, in many instances, uh, uh, capture by corporations of the political uh, system, but still relatively free. Definitely compared to counterparts. Exactly. Right. Yeah, right. So we, you know, we're the cleanest shirt in the pile of dirt laundry. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's really, really important is the rule of law. I think actually the rule of law is the most important. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you can adjudicate your disputes through a well-set-up and well-respected and believed-in system, Mm -hmm. that goes a really, really long way towards keeping all those boogeymen of hyperinflation and everything out out of the picture. So it's not a surprise that when you see those kinds of economic events, and they're devastating, and I I don't want to sound at all flip, these people are really, really suffering. Mm -hmm. And, And so... Uh, but, you know, there's a script for not having that. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a script for having it, too. Of course. Um, and the script for not having it is not democratic, not free institutions, no rule of law. And whenever you see a country that adheres to those, those what I would call that toxic brew, uh, the chances of that kind of thing happening uh, are much, much higher. But keep in mind. There's nobody in Venezuela buying anything other than in U.S. dollars. Mm-hmm. And that has remained very, very stable there. So if you're crazy and, and want to, you know, use their currency, well, good luck. Get your wheelbarrows out. Yep. Uh, but uh, again, markets are fascinating things because what they do is they find a way. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, so just a brief digression, I tend to have a, a, a political outlook that is very different than most people. Um, I, I'm what I would say kind of a libertarian. <laughs> uh, and, and I think of things like drug laws. Mm-hmm. I think drug laws are insane. We have all of the history that shows that they are insane. Mm-hmm. We have all of the history that shows they created a much larger mafia. Mm-hmm. And we have all of the history of showing, even in a great free democracy uh, country like our own, a corruption at the upper levels of government, which is very troubling. Look at what uh, they've done in Portugal. They made drugs, they decriminalized drugs 15 years ago. Guess what's happened? Drug use has plunged. Mm -hmm. All of the good things and all the kind of, you know, 
things that you could, if you were able to really think about it, happen. Now, does that mean that I personally take drugs? No, I don't. You know, I, I, I really don't. Um, I, I but, remember but, but once I th- at a party, I coming home and looking at my wife and saying, "You have no idea what a Boy Scout you're uh, married to." <laughs> 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 but, but I, but I, I think that this is really interesting, right? Because it is, uh, you know, I, I think most people want to do what they're told they're not allowed to do. Oh, right? absolutely. Th- th- there's an element of that, and so th- this. Uh, this work that you've done on the human psychology and how they interact with economic markets and stuff is really interesting because I think also, um, you know, somebody recently told me they said, uh, I think there's a saying that, you know, basically uh, when people can print money, they will. Oh, yeah. Right. Sure. And, and so I think that, you know, when you look at these, um, you know, kind of hyperinflation countries, literally there's no checks and balances. And so there's None. usually one person who's kind of in charge of everything and they print money. Yes, they do. <laughs> and, you know, what else is interesting is I know and I can't disclose yep. uh, because I, you know, it, it's kind of like uh, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. <laughs> uh, when we changed uh, our currency completely, there was a reason for that. Mm-hmm. Some very bad people had treasury plates. Mm-hmm. And so in a advanced democracy like the United States, done. I mean, that happened overnight, mm-hmm. uh, making those old plates absolutely worthless. Mm-hmm. So when you have a very high-functioning democracy uh, with institutions that have been around for a long, long time, those types of things don't generally happen. And the other thing that I always tell people, and I usually get non-Wall Street people just laughing in my face, and it is people do not really understand that Wall Street is entirely based on trust. You know, get decayed. You know what decay means? Don't know, mm-hmm. right? If you get decayed in a trade, you're probably never, ever, going to trade with that guy or woman again Mm -hmm. ever and they are effectively boxed out because everything that we do is done on our word Mm -hmm. you know when you get on the phone you say whatever like the guy buying the crypto earlier Mm -hmm. (laughs) he wasn't on the phone but if 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 his counterparty uh uh couldn't trust him well the markets would collapse so i think that the united states um obviously has probably one of the best uh, functioning uh, market systems. Uh, some in Europe, especially interestingly enough, Eastern, the former Eastern European uh, states mm-hmm. like Estonia, et cetera, they have set up some really cool stuff. And, you know, like flat tax rates, you can do it all by computer um, because they had the opportunity to, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and that's the other thing that I'm a big believer in Legacy can be a problem, mm-hmm. right? So if you're a monster company and all of your software is circa 1985, getting rid of that and updating it to 2018 is a Herculean effort. Mm-hmm. And so you, you definitely, you know, I think you and, and your team are in a position that's interesting because you don't have to deal with any of those uh, situations and you can you can kind of have best of class right away absolutely uh, let, let's talk a little bit about money and, and kind of money supply and so um, you know the US currency is based on a inflationary model uh, Bitcoin is obviously based on a deflationary model just given kind of again your experience in markets and, and you know really taking this economic perspective, Pros, cons, you know, what do you think is uh, kind of your outlook on that deflationary model and if it could work? So generally speaking, we did a study of when stocks performed the best. Okay. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, they they did best under moderate inflation. Interesting. Um, not high inflation, but but very, very moderate inflation. Uh, deflation is a scary thing for an economy. And if you think about it for just a second, you'll understand why. We are uh, going out and, and let's say we both want to buy a car. And we need the car. We need it for our job. We, yep. We've got to get to our job, et cetera. But we look at each other and we say, yeah, but if we wait a month, this is going to be like $500 cheaper. 
Mm -hmm. And so what happens in a deflationary spiral is you lose the confidence of the consumers. And because they, they think in their mind that, wow, if I just wait, it's gonna be a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. So consumption declines precipitously and people hang on to cash. And so the, the, uh, you know, the best case scenario, I think, would be if, if uh, uh, the various cryptocurrencies didn't have any, you know, they, they could truly be a store of value, mm-hmm. right? With, with very small movements. Absolutely. And, and that, that's really because one, if you have a, defra- a deflationary model at some point, take Bitcoin for a uh, second, 21 million Bitcoins will be mined and be available, right? Some will be lost. Some will, you know, people won't uh, remember they have them. So, so there's some, you know, kind of circulation that is actually not accessible. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, there will be a set number. And at that point, the logic, I think, holds that, you know, there will be some market equi- equilibrium that's found, right? There won't be kind of constant supply going in or out of the system. And so that should be a decent store of value if you can find that equilibrium and, and that stability in the price. Yes. Theoretically. B- big F. Yep. Um, and so, you know, as an outsider who just is kind of interested in this and, and watching where it's going, mm-hmm. Um, I, I definitely think a lot of those thoughts. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I think, uh, well, if it, you really can't have something uh, that people look at as a store of value mm-hmm. that has 20 and 30 percent movements because it's it it again to psychology. Yep. If 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 we're getting all excited because our Bitcoin went up 30% or we're despondent because it went down 30%. The fact is that does not lead to a sense of certainty mm-hmm. about it. And, uh, you know, I think that's something that the U.S. dollar still has. It, it, you know, I've read all the stuff on how it's a fiat currency and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Debt crisis. But and yeah, get yeah, into yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and I'm not convinced. I'm just not convinced. When we did the QE, it had no inflationary uh, effect, and it had no inflationary effect because there was simply no demand for that money. Mm-hmm. It got it got put on people's bank balances. Mm-hmm. And you know, when when people understand that, they don't go crazy, right? And so, I think I'm fascinated by the idea of a currency that can keep its store of value. I think the proof of work uh, concept works really well. Yep. Um, I think that the the whole delivery system and the ability of transportability and all of that. Look, I think if you were designing a currency, there's a lot of really good features yep. of cryptocurrency. Until right uh markets treat it like a speculative asset as they have been mm-hmm. uh and then suddenly everyone's just like ah i i, I I'm, I'm not gonna do this stuff it, it's almost as if uh even if it is the best currency but you lose the uh the consumer confidence right of not only price volatility right but security right would be another piece uh and then the, the part that i think gets lost in this conversation a lot is the acceptance right right so so even if i can store value <laughs> i either have to believe that somebody else will one day want to buy this from me right yes. to, to basically get out of that store of value so another consumer etc but then if it's money an actual currency i have to be able to give it to somebody in exchange for some other value see and that is the magic of currency systems mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you know your monetary history, you know that we've used things all over the map as currency, you know, clamshells, <laughs> uh, literally. Yep. Uh, tulips, um, obviously gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it has to meet the criteria you have just outlined. Mm-hmm. You have to be absolutely certain that if you want to buy my iPhone from me, that I will sell it to you and I will accept that currency yep. as a store of value for myself. And you, conversely, have to have exactly the same belief. Yep. And so that's where I find this is kind of interesting, right? Because I think that if, if the 
crypto market had been able to kind of be introduced with a little less volatility mm -hmm. because the one thing that I do know from the stock market is volatility terrifies. And, and I don't mean, oh, I'm kind of nervous here. I mean, people do incredibly rash and silly things. Mm -hmm. We had clients in uh, the financial crisis taking $250,000 out of their bank account and putting it in safety deposit boxes. And, and you know, I would be on the phone with them saying, uh, <laughs> that isn't going to help you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, when people are, and we're, by the way, we are all the same. Mm -hmm. Everyone sitting in this room, everyone in your family and my family, everyone we've ever known. We are human beings, homo sapien sapien, right? That's mm -hmm. because of the new prefrontal uh, cortex. But we are still being, you know, and I can't remember the author, and I would love to give uh, credit to him because it's such a great quote. But uh, he said something along the lines of, you know, we are operating 21st century software on 50,000-year-old hardware. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I think that just encapsulated. Yep. Uh, we, we just are not optimized. And so my, my thing was to say, you know what? I'm just going to admit, I don't know. Yep. I don't know. What I do know, that if I was left to my own devices, I would panic too. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, because I'm a human being. And I I'm not having been <laughs> excluded or excused from that class. And, uh, you know, I always shake my heads at the people who I did a little experiment on Twitter uh, last week. And I, I said uh, I put a picture of the uh, Wall Street Journal from after the big crash in 1987. And I said, you're reading this for the first time. What do you do? Well, of course, like more than 100. Oh, buy back up the truck. <laughs> but <laughs> no, you wouldn't. have. But that's what's so cool about the way the human mind works. They honestly believe that they would have mm -hmm. because and they don't understand that they have hindsight and that that happened 30 years ago. And so it's in the past and there's no emotion. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you really if you tried to get into an argument with them, you couldn't convince them that they thought that they were lying. Yep. That's the funny way the mind works. So I, I definitely think that we are all subject to these rules and, and if you want to understand any financial uh, instrument, understand this human behavior and interaction, and then see where are you in that phase, right? How do you see behavior change between uh, what I think many would consider the great investors from everyone else? Is there a change, or is it they've basically done the prep work to prevent themselves from making mistakes during those those weak moments? So, well, uh, Sir John Templeton was famous for um, when stocks were doing very poorly. He would make a list of his favorite stocks um, and put buy orders in at prices way below where they were. And his reasoning was if the stocks ever got to that level, he would not have the guts to put the order in. He just couldn't do it. So there was a guy who understood his own human nature. Um, I love that. What we do is we are entirely rules-based. Mm -hmm. I never override. I mean, you know, people would say to me, well, you know, is it the formulas? Is it? No, it's not the formulas. You know, if you've got the best idea in the world, you can scream it from the rooftops and people either won't believe you, won't, you know, hear you. And certainly, even if they attempt to do it, won't do it right. Yep. And so we're not worried about that. What we worry about is, look, we're, we're constantly improving our, our uh, algorithms that select um, models. Uh, and portfolios, and I've got a great research team. That's what we spend all of our time on. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I think I am proudest of is the fact that in my 30-plus year career history as an investor, I have never emotionally given in. Mm -hmm. By overriding a model. By overriding a model. Yep. And we had, a, and that's hard. Yep. And, and just just to clarify, so people who, who are on the same page as us, uh, what you're talking about there is you have a model that is Correct. just you know based on data, 
right, and, and formulas that you've created that tell you when to buy, when to sell, when to hold, right? Basically, Precisely. They, they give you directions. They give us directions. And, and you can either listen them. or not. Yeah. Right? We, we used to, uh, we used to uh, have a context uh, or a contest back at O'Shaughnessy Capital mm-hmm. uh, where we would put the list of 50 uh, uh, names that were being selected by our small cap uh, growth strategy. And we would have everyone guess which were going to be the 10 big performers and which were going to be the 10 worst performers. Well, you can see this coming a mile away. Everyone that they thought were going to be the 10 worst ended up being, for the most part, the 10 best. And the 10 best ended up being the 10 worst. And so I just, you know, I basically made my mind up after a trade that I actually wrote about uh, when I sold a huge position of put, uh, puts right literally on the Friday before the Monday stock market crash. Oh. And I did that, which I'll send you a link to. I did that because I was watching TV and I was listening to the radio and everyone was like, oh, this is so overdone. We're going to have the biggest bounce back rally ever. And I let my emotions determine what I was doing. And I was sold all the puts, and then Monday happened. <laughs> and so I thought about I used to keep a trader. You had a bad Monday, but for other reasons. <laughs> yes, for very other reasons. Um, but but I, I also recommend people keep journals mm-hmm. so that you remember what you actually were thinking in real time. Because, again, mm-hmm. the brain will play beautiful tricks on you. Mm-hmm. It will make you think that you were not thinking that way at all. And then you go back and there it is in your own handwriting, staring at you in the face and you go, Oh God, I was thinking that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I, I wrote a lot about that, thought about a lot of that. And I, this was concurrent with reading all these books on, on the efficacy of uh, these various decision trees. And by the way, not just wall street, Horse handicappers, handicapping races, doctors diagnosing liver cancer, psychologists determining whether somebody has a treatable problem or not, college administrators trying to determine who to let in. All of them are outperformed. I don't know. Have you ever read the book uh, Algorithms to Live By? Yes. Okay. So my favorite example of this is uh, they go to the Israeli military and uh, in the officer training course. And they basically, you know, it's early in the training course. And they say uh, to somebody, you know, pick who's going to be the best officer. And they give them some criteria as to what that definition is. And they almost always pick the strongest looking, most, you know, egotistical kind of type A personality is that's that's the one that's going to lead us into battle. They're going to be the best. And when the bullets start flying, usually they're the one who, you know, runs into the truck and gets on the radio. (laughs) You know, it's really funny. I I read a guy who's really into uh, geopolitics and and uh, one of his quips was actually a, it was an interesting piece, but he was saying he, he would show a picture of soldiers, right? And he goes, who are the best soldiers here? And, of course, you go to the strapped guys mm-hmm. with the big arms and everything. The guy who looks like you. They are the skinniest, wiriest, because they're fast, yep. they're smart, and they know they, 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 they have the muscle memory for just everything they got to do. Yep. So appearances really can be conceiving mm-hmm. or, or deceiving. And, you know, I think that's kind of the that's the, the thing that's interesting with crypto. I think that I think that once there is kind of an agreed upon uh, set of rules mm-hmm. um, that then crypto could do pretty well Mm -hmm. i think that and again i don't know (laughs) (laughs) because i am no crypto expert but i think that um you know institutional participation is vital yep you've definitely got to get the bigger financial institutions being willing yep um and once that happens then then things might they might develop in a way unexpected or unforecasted, mm-hmm. but if they're involved, my guess is that that is an imperator that you don't like have right now. Absolutely. Right, a lot of it is being announced and they're planning on doing, but you know it's kind of like uh, we'll wait until the cash is in the bank. Um, and when you have that moment, I think. I think that will be a real milestone for mm-hmm. the cryptocurrency community because mm-hmm. the, uh, it, that lending the legitimacy of some of these big financial institutions, uh, you know, that that could be huge. 
Absolutely. What um, what's the best piece of financial investment advice you've ever received? Right. In terms of from another investor, what's the best piece of advice they ever gave you? Hmm. Um, well, I have a friend named Brent Bishore, and this is going to be ah. advice uh, through Brent because it didn't come directly from Brent. It Brent came, is fantastic. It, it, it came from uh, Warren Buffett. And Brent went to a dinner with him. And by the way, full disclosure, our family is involved mm -hmm. with uh, an investment in Brent. Um, anyway, uh, Brent is a very detail-oriented guy and a really super nice guy. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, he wanted to hear all about Buffett's diligence. And you know, he had his paper ready to take his notes. And Buffett looked at him and he goes, price is my only diligence. And as I kind of thought about that, I thought, wow, that is like really brilliant, right? Because at some point, everything gets worth buying for the most <laughs> part. If it's functioning and, you know. It's not illegal, right? Yeah, there's not, you, there's not some quagmire that you're stepping into. Yep. And, and it's kind of like, yeah. I mean, ultimately, uh, Jamie Dian, uh, Diamond once said, give me a uh, C-ranked plan with A-ranked players, and I'll take that all day long over an A-ranked plan with C-ranked players. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, m most investment advice is really elemental, mm -hmm. and, and it speaks to uh, what I call the well-duh, well, mm -hmm. right? You know, so you hear Buffett say, Price is my only diligence, and you think, well, if it wasn't Warren Buffett, no one would pay any attention to him. But they would. They would. Because you, when you think about it, and you wrap that around your head, and, and I looked at Bre or, uh, Brent and went, wow, that's, that's really profound. Mm -hmm. um, so I think one, one of the things that I've been on uh, recently is, look, I believe that people, if they want to be great investors, they have to create their investment scheme that's right for them. Mm -hmm. What is right for me might not be right for you. Read as much as you can and read outside the field mm -hmm. of finance, definitely. But as you do that, take notes. See what resonates with you. See what doesn't. Ask yourself, would I really be able to uh, withstand that kind of downturn and mm -hmm. then ask yourself an, uh, an even ob more obvious question okay how did I uh, perform during the financial crisis mm -hmm. if I sold all my stocks in uh, January or February I know I got a problem and then I got to try to build an investment strategy that will work for me listen good investing is simple it's just not easy mm -hmm. and and that is you know, something that a lot of people, you know, go back to basic principles and, you know, get somebody to be a wingman for you because for the most part, you'll panic. I used to say to people, you know, do a letter from your advisor that's from you that says, dear Mr. Advisor, Mrs. Advisor, I know that at some point in the future, I will panic about, you know, and then leave a space where you can fill it in. <laughs> And you are going to tell me what a stupid idea that is for me and then show it to me at the time. Um, again, as, as long as human nature remains what it is, I got a day job. Absolutely. What, um, what element of crypto do you think is uh, most analogous to the work that you guys do? Right. So you guys are uh, very quantitatively driven. You're, you're very aware of human psychology and kind of the market forces uh, that are driven by that. When you look at the crypto market, you know, and, and you look at your business, sure. what's the thing where you're like, you know, that makes a lot of sense to, to apply this approach to? Sure. So the only thing that we would have in our toolkit that I would just sort of say was a natural for crypto would be our momentum composite. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most CTAs are momentum players. Um, and when you look at the most successful models in, you know, cotton and gold and whatever, their momentum, momentum models. I mean, because you know there aren't really fundamentals mm -hmm. about crypto, um, and so I would think that momentum could be very applicable. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and we have many different types of uh, momentum. The one we use the most is a composite of momentum that includes standard deviation of return. Oh, so it, it uh, penalizes the most volatile, mm -hmm. and it uh, gives more support to the less volatile. Mm -hmm. um, I could see that working pretty nicely. I mean, it, you know, if somebody said, Jim, you know, I'm putting a gun to your head and you've got to trade this crypto and you better make some money, I would definitely use a momentum model. Mm -hmm. It's it's amazing. Um, all right, so I end each podcast by letting the guest ask me one question, and uh, before I let you do that, I'll give you a second to think. Uh, I have to comment because uh, uh, I have been impressed with your GIF game on Twitter. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Jim is uh, is quite active on Twitter, and, and over the last couple of weeks, all of a sudden, it's like he discovered the uh, the GIF feature and has been lighting the internet on fire. <laughs> and, and I have literally laughed out loud a few times when I've seen the things that you've posted. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, look, I, I think that, um, you know, here's another thing that I've found is that most of the smartest people I've ever met, and I've met a lot of people in my life. I've been very, very blessed and lucky. Most of the smartest people I've met in life have a good sense of humor. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's for two reasons, right? Because a good sense of humor also sees the dark side, right? And so I figure gifts, if we can't laugh and have a little fun, <laughs> what's, you know, what, 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 what's a day for? All right. The question that I have for you is, why did you abandon your logo that I retagged onto your messages? Oh, the, the virus the, is spreading. The virus oh. is spreading. I love that. So the virus <laughs> is spreading with uh, with the rocket. All right, so uh, because you're asking, I will uh, I will let uh, one of my secrets go. Um, so I think of Twitter as a combination between conversations that we're all having on the internet as characters of ourselves, mm. right? Yep. And so uh, if you were to look at Twitter through the lens of WWE, for example, right? right. And I asked you, I said, you know, who is the uh, hero? Who is the, you know, villain? Who is the kind of the, the clowny person, right? And, and who is the announcer? And, and, yeah, and yeah. you could probably say, ah, this person kind of fits that, that character, <laughs> right? And, and, and so uh, the first time that I said it uh, was not intentional in, in kind of any grand plan, yep. but uh, the, the logic. That's often how things go. Of course. The, the logic behind it was uh, everyone's worried about the technology, right? But what, what was fascinating me, and I think, you know, why I'm drawn to a lot of things that, that you're thinking about is uh, the psychological um, element of this. It was capturing the mental energy of everyone, yeah. right? Across every industry across every age demographic uh, geogra you know geographic location i mean just everything it's a good meme right it's and, a very good meme and, 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 and it was i was like this is this is viral right in in the sense of kind of from the technology world but it's spreading like a virus because no one can stop it right, right? when a right. product goes viral you can basically pull the plug and, and stop the growth with a yeah. virus yep. a lot of times you can't stop it yep. and, and so uh, i was like you know the virus is spreading and the internet lit up Right. And, and totally I just did. And people kept saying it over and, and over and over were, again. You were off for a little while and you came back and I saw that you didn't have it. And I actually put it on. <laughs> I do remember. <laughs> well, well, the reason. So. So when I came I back. Went, Pump, you're slipping here. Well, well, you so got it, a tagline. No. So, so there was two things that, as to why. Uh, and it wasn't, again, not even really intentional. But uh, when I took when I took the Twitter break, uh, what I realized was it, it just. Twitter specifically, and, and I was during a drawdown. It was you know through all sure, through all this stuff. Sure, I, I think that a little more sobriety, a little well, more. the pro and the con yeah, of yeah. all of this playing out Actually, digitally, right, yeah, and kind sense. of on Twitter is um, is this idea that uh, somebody can come up with a thought, a thesis, you know, whatever, throw it out into the open. Yeah, and there's people from all walks of life, all perspectives, all levels of success and failure, and they just attack. Right. True. Now, true. The good part of that is the law of attrition takes over. And so the ideas that can withstand those attacks are usually the strongest and have the most merit and and kind of end up persisting over some long period of time. 
but there's a lot of ideas that never make it through the, through yeah, that attrition. You know, there's a guy on Twitter who I follow and actually support his work. He's called Mimetic Value. Okay. And he has a really interesting deck about, um, you know, John Campbell's The uh, Hero's Journey. Yep. And how, you know, every story that we hear is like one of six. <laughs> uh, but he, one of his ideas is there always has to be a scapegoat. Mm. And he talks about how the scapegoat, Steve Jobs, mm -hmm. turned into the hero. Ah. And it's really interesting. I'll, I'll send you the link because I think you, you, you'd enjoy following him. For sure. Um, Twitter is a uh, is one of the places where again I think human psychology oh, and incentives just play out perfectly. You know, it is the world's largest psychology experiment uh, ever conducted, mm -hmm. and we still don't know how it's going to turn out. <laughs> I, it, it, Fifty years from now, when they are uh, when they are going through the data and they see your gifts, they're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna Who was you're gonna this guy? <laughs> you're gonna throw some sand in the wheels there. <laughs> no, Jim, th this is awesome. Thank you so this much for, uh, for for coming in and, and uh, sharing your perspective All with right, us. Thanks for having me. Right. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help crypto take over Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you're listening to it, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review. Simply go to the Off The Chain homepage and scroll down until you see those five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way for us and the entirety of the crypto takeover. See you next time on Off The Chain.